Jay Grisham Machen. And as you have already noticed, he's one of the, uh, and, and apologies to the new kids for this thing down here. I can't get rid of it. So <laughs> I've tried and tried and tried. Um, Jay Gresham Machen, one of our uh, newest old dead guys. He was born July 28, 1881, Baltimore, Maryland. And he died New Year's Day, 1937. Unfortunately, at the ripe old age of 55. And he died from pneumonia after exposure and just sheer exhaustion. Most people think he basically worked himself to death at a very, very young age. He went uh, to preach and got very, very sick because of the elements and all that stuff. And his, his family, or we really didn't have any family, but he was begged not to go. And he went anyway, and he got very, very sick. And, uh, so... Last recorded words by Telegram were, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. There is no hope without it. Anybody want to take a stab at the active obedience of Christ? When we talk about the active, sometimes we say the active and the passive obedience of Christ. We think about the active. It's Don't overthink it, people. Willingly going to the cross? Yeah, well, yep, going to the cross. Everything that he did, right? So any of the... the he lived the perfect life. Right. His active obedience. Yes. Oh, Christ's okay. active obedience. Yes. Not Machen's active obedience. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's what right. his... He was oh, always kind of thinking theologically in, in what that accomplished. Right. right? So some background. Um, he was basically rich from the time he was a little kid. He was born into a very well-to-do but Christian family. Uh, his mother was well-educated. She was an author. His father was a lawyer. He had a private education that was steeped in the classics and Reformed theology. He was a master of the Westminster Catechism. So he was a card-carrying Presby at that point and remained. So he grew up in the shadows of the Civil War, really in the South. And so uh, he did have some baggage, and that was unfortunate. And he had some baggage as far as uh, racial prejudice and things like that that he was still working through and as we've come across some of that before we don't downplay that we don't ignore that we don't call it anything other than what it is sin and uh, he was unfortunately a product of his environment in, in some of those ways he did his undergrad undergrad rather at John Hopkins and then he went to Princeton Seminary and he was determined to basically not head into the ministry but he was very theologically minded from the time that he was very young. He also, again, himself was very wealthy. At 21, he inherited $50,000, which Whoa. you might think, okay, it's 50 grand. But to give you an idea, his first teaching position at Princeton paid him $2,000 a year. So at 21 years old, he gets 50 grand. He studied in Germany for a year, and there he ran into liberal theology faced it, and it shook him to the core. Because he respected these men greatly because they were serious academics, they were serious theologians, they were well-researched, they were well-read, they were well-spoken, but they did not believe orthodox, biblical, historical Christianity. And mm -hmm. so it shook him to his core. But it forced him to think through those things. And he came back even more sure of his theology than he was. And so... You know, it, it tells us right away, guys, to engage, to engage with our questions. Uh, don't be afraid of, 
following those doubts down a trail through the Word of God and through other church fathers and other things like we pointed to. So follow those doubts, and they will make your faith stronger. They really, really will. That's what he proved in his life. He took a uh, year a contract as a Greek prof at Princeton Seminary and kind of, as the story goes, kind of kept just one-upping that for a couple years because he wasn't really excited about staying as a Greek prof because, again, he was kind of like, yeah, this theology is nice and all, but I really don't want to stay here. But then he just ended up staying there for 23 years mm-hmm. as a uh, Greek professor, other theology professor at Princeton. So that kind of brings us to a lot of things that happened while at Princeton. One of the things that uh, Machen is known for is contending for the truth in several areas. Um, He contended against liberalism or modernism, as it's called. He fought against plans for the Presbyterian Church to merge with other Protestant denominations, and he fought that immediately because he said, no, they're going to compromise some of the core historical orthodox Christian doctrines, as in reflected in the Westminster Confession of Faith or something like that. So there was a movement within the Presbyterian Church to then merge with some of these other mainline Christian denominations, and he said, no way, I'm not going to do that. He published his second work, I believe it was, called Christianity and Liberalism in 1923, and this was a bombshell at that time. Because what it did was... It was really a stinging rebuke to a church that had lost its way. So he saw what was going on. He was over in Germany. He knew this was coming to America, and he started to see it here in his own denomination. And he's like, no way. And so he responded by writing this book, Christianity and Liberalism. Uh, He accused the church. Now, use your imagination here. Just try and imagine this. He accused the church of caving in to cultural relevance. That would never happen. No. That's never going to happen. Yeah, so we have to use our imagination there. Like I said, you know, some of these guys, it's obscure. We can't really relate to what's going on. But yes, no, of course we can, right? He was seeing the handwriting on the wall. He was seeing it coming here, and he published that book immediately to counteract that. A couple quotes from Christianity and Liberalism. The type of religion which rejoices in the pious sound of traditional phrases, regardless of their meaning, watch this, or shrinks, hi guys, from controversial matters, will never stand amidst the shock of life. In the sphere of religion, as in other spheres, the things about which men are agreed are apt to be the things are least worth holding on to. The really important things are the things about which men will fight. So right away he's saying, okay, look at culture. He's like, what everybody is going to agree upon and whatever, what, what the masses are going to kind of think is okay, it's probably the least important. But what you see men contending for, those are going to be the most important doctrines. And we're going to talk about a lot of that. So one of his other parts of um, Christianity and, and liberalism was that the essence of Christianity is based on historical facts. In other words, like the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The essence of Christianity is based on historical facts. And he started to see that drift where people were like, oh, well, what's truth? Maybe truth is relative. Maybe truth is 
your truth, or maybe there is no such thing as facts. And he said, no, no, no. In, in, in that book, he said, it is about historical facts. Another great quote from the book. He said, Christ died. That is history. Christ died for our sins. That is doctrine. Without these two elements joined in absolutely indissoluble union, there is no Christianity. There has to be both history and doctrine that comes together, he said. It's not just some obscure thing, intellectual thing that you learn in a book, right? And we've hit on this time and time again. Some people have an intellectual awareness, right? But not necessarily a heart transformation. We're always going for the heart transformation. We need the truth in order for the heart to be transformed. We need both of those things, right? So he said you need history and you need doctrine. And I think one of the third, there are many things you could say about the book, but one of, one of the other big kind of groupings in the book itself as far as a theme would be that liberalism is not Christianity at all. There's a temptation to say that, well, you're a liberal Christian or you're a conservative Christian or you're a fundamental, fundamentalist Christian or something like that. Machen drew a line in the sand and he said no. A liberal Christianity is not Christianity. And some quotes. Liberalism on the one hand and the religion of the historic church on the other are not two varieties of the same religion, but two distinct religions proceeding from altogether separate roots. So they're not the same thing. They're totally different. He says, it's no wonder then that liberalism is totally different from Christianity, for the foundation is different. Christianity is founded on the Bible. It stresses upon the Bible uh, both in its thinking and its life. Liberalism, on the other hand, is founded on the shifting emotions of sinful men. So why can't we trust the shifting emotions of sinful men? The heart is deceitful and wicked. Yes. <laughs> Jeremiah 17.9, right? The heart is deceitful and wicked, desperately sick. Who can understand it? Right? I, the Lord, test the mind, test the heart. Right? Saying that if we're basing our doctrine, our religion, on feelings or emotions of men or the whims of culture, those things are always going to change. And then do you really have a foundation at all? And he said, no, no. you don't. The Bible, then, must be your foundation as the authoritative truth. Right? He sought to analyze modern culture in a critical assessment. So he saw what was going on out there, and he said, let's figure out if this is good or not, based upon what the Bible has to say. So He talked about a lot of things, again, at this time, was happening uh, the, the fundamentalist modernist controversy and kind of a, a case in point for that might be pun intended the scopes trial in that in 1925 anybody know what the scopes trial is the monkey yes. trial the yes. monkey trial <laughs> absolutely the monkey trial can you teach Darwinism in, or, yeah. Yeah, in yeah. school? So Scopes was a high school, school teacher who broke the Butler Act that said you can't teach anything but uh, the Bible. And so he taught evolution. There was a lot of uh, controversy in there that he was hired by the ACLU and he was kind of like a, just whatever, a guy that <clears throat> was a substitute teacher even that really wasn't the regular teacher and went in and ended up being their, their huckleberry, I guess you might say. 
and went in there and taught this and then blew everything wide open. A trial resulted. William Jennings Bryant was called as an expert witness for the prosecution. He was also supposed to be the guy that was the expert on the Bible. And he took the stand. Despite actually winning the trial, the prosecution won for a little bit. But what happened in, as a result was that William Jennings Bryant was desperately unable to defend the biblical view of creation. And it, and it showed through very, very well, very, very sadly, I guess you'd say. And it really emboldened the liberal side. And they said, look, like this is your best guy. Like he can't defend the biblical idea of creation. And so Christians really had a black eye from that. They really did. And, and it really emboldened the other side of liberalism, and that just kind of took off like a freight train after that. Um, Princeton then kind of was in the sights of the liberals. So they had their sights set on Princeton Seminary, which up until this point had been historic, had been orthodox, had been fully conservative, not liberal. But then they set their sights on Princeton uh, Seminary. <clears throat> There was a cartoon that I found, you probably can't see it that well, but this is actually a cartoon that used to be in the 1920s. It's called The Descent of the Modernists. And it's got a staircase there. And those are doctrines that they're stepping down. And as they're stepping down from each one, they're kind of, it signifies that they're giving up those things. Giving up um, the Bible being infallible. Giving up man being made in God's image. Giving up miracles. Giving up virgin birth. Giving up the deity of Christ. The atonement. The resurrection. Getting to agnosticism. And you can't see the last step, but it's um, atheism. Mm -hmm. So it's the descent, he said, into atheism. This was what was running in the papers as a result of the Scopes trial and these sorts of things. So they came to Princeton. They set their sights on Princeton. Um, Machen saw it. He fought it with everything that he had. He went to the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church and fought it hard, and he basically lost. And so the liberals did take over Princeton Seminary. They reorganized in 1929, and Machen said, okay, guess what? I quit. And he took Van Til, he took a couple other guys with him, and they went and they started a little place called Westminster Theological Seminary, which is still around today in Philadelphia for the Presbyterian Church. So they left. Uh, the goal was to keep alive the original conservative spirit of Princeton. They opened their doors. Anybody else know what was going on in 1929? The stock market crash. <laughs> they opened their doors a month before the stock market crash. Good time, right? But God's hand was with them, and they actually survived that. It was some desperate years, but they actually survived. Does Princeton still have a seminary Princeton. to this day? It does. Princeton still does have a seminary to this day. And it is very little. Yeah. It's a gorgeous, it's It is a gorgeous old building. It's down there in Princeton and on 206, right through the main drag. You can see it. The buildings are absolutely gorgeous. But yeah, they're full LGBTQ, one, two, three, accepting all of that uh, in ministry. Very, very liberal in doctrine and all of that. Their numbers, I read one, was like, they're down to like 300 students. So, I don't know. I don't know if they're actually still with. I think they're still connected to the PCUSA. I'm not sure. But. I mean, following a pursuit for <coughs> cultural immorality didn't lead to a burst in seminary development? <laughs> <laughs> no, not always. 
I guess sometimes it could. Southern Seminary, on the other hand, you may have heard of. Southern Seminary, <laughs> when Albert Muller took over in 1994, brought all the faculty in there and said, Hey, look what I found. <laughs> Much like Josiah, right? He's like, I found the book of the law of the Lord. He found <laughs> their, uh, oh, what do they call them? The precepts, I believe they call them, of everything that they are supposed to be abiding by. He literally dusted it off, found it, and said, Everybody sign this. Or else you're fired. And he fired like 30 people. It was crazy. People were picketing all over the place. But um, Southern Seminary has exploded in enrollment. It just keeps going up, up, and up every year. So maybe that should be a marketing strategy. Stick to the truth. Yeah. What a concept. Yeah, really. <laughs> On the Westminster website, uh, I, call, um, I grabbed this quote. It says, this is Machen saying, but to Christ... Despite all, we hold. So picture that, like stock markets crumbling around you. You, you don't think people are going to pay money to come to your seminary. Yeah. Future looks bleak. He says, but to Christ, despite all, we hold. These words were from the culmination of Machen's first convocation address. <clears throat> he extolled the glories of Christ and the truth of Scripture as the cause of their new school. He reminded them that their pursuit meant going against growing trends in culture and even in seminary education. Right from the start, he's saying, we're going to be different. We're going to go against culture in this. So, some implications. And I want to spend a lot of time on this, just kind of talking about, because these are this is so critical to where we are today. So, maybe less on kind of Mr. Machen himself, right? but more on the implications of this because we're walking through this. First order doctrines, right? There are hills worth dying on and then there are not hills worth dying on. What's a hill not worth dying on, theologically speaking? This could get interesting. If your pastor should wear a robe or not. <laughs> Infant baptism. If your pastor should wear a robe or not. That's good. That's not a thing. Or a tie or not. not a, or a tie or not. That is not a thing, a hill to die on. What did you say? Infant baptism. Infant baptism. Okay. we got to draw a little bit of a line there because Mr. Machen and his Presbyterian friends would be a covenantal infant baptism, which we recognize, right, but not on the line of what's called regenerative infant baptism, which is right. the Roman Catholic Church. Yep. So... Right. There's a line over here. We'll die on this line, right? right? But we won't die on this line in yeah. between covenant infant baptism and believer's baptism, right? We'll right. recognize those because we have brothers that we know and love, like Machen, like R.C. Sproul, like Tim Keller, like yeah. Sussex Christian Reformed Church or something like that, right? That is a mode of baptism. Right. You know? So, yes. Just got to clarify terms. Sir. Style of music we play in church. Uh, <laughs> style of music we play in church. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean by that, Noel? Yeah. Tell us, because I think you're onto something important. There's so there's one thing to have contemporary music, and there's another to have contemporary Jesus is my boyfriend music. You waited till I was drinking to say that. <laughs> I did. <laughs> uh, yeah, some some churches play like worship songs that don't mention 
the gospel or Jesus at all. So it is a hill to die on, Ron. I said style of music. Thank you very much. Not the content. <laughs> Not content. Not lyrical content. Okay, very good. Okay. Define terms. <laughs> right. So just as I am with a banjo or just as I am with an organ. That's what we're disputing here. Um, just tell me when you I think we're disputing just as I am. <laughs> What's the most what's the most important thing in worship music? Electric guitar. <laughs> <laughs> Bass and drums. God is the most important God thing. God is the most important thing, right? Right. What are the lyrics doing? Like we're not and giving lyrics, a concert here. The lyrics are communicating basic concepts of the Bible. Gospel. Mm -hmm. The gospel. Colossians three. Exhort one another, teach one another, remind one another. So the words that we sing <coughs> play a role right. in teaching us and reminding right. us the things that are in here. Right. Not just the gospel, but gospel, characteristics of God, characteristics yep. of believers, how we're supposed to behave, lots of stuff. It, it, yep. You know, as long as it's in there. So Noel's point's a good one, because if we're singing things that are not true, according to this, or... Vague, there's a lot of vague worship music out there that kind of could go more towards the emotional side of things, right? It's not really helping us. My favorite songs are words mostly right from the Bible. You mm -hmm. know, they're taken, lifted out, mm -hmm. and put in a song. Yep. What else? What else are not hills to die on? Those are good things. Mr. Okay. Bob. End times interpretation. End times interpretation. Good Date one. planners. <laughs> Date setters. Pre-post-tribulation. What's that? Pre or post-tribulation rapture. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Pre, post-trib, mid-trib, after-trib, yeah. is there a trib, all of the tribs, right? The hill to die on in that, though, kind of like baptism, right? If you say Jesus is not coming back, or that Jesus has already come back, that's a hill to die on, right? What's going to happen, like, before he comes back, that's, we can have a lot of discussion on that. Some of those things have some more theological tentacles than others. If you were around for our Revelation series, perhaps, we went through a lot of that stuff, why some of that's important. Okay. So my point is, there are things that are um, first order items, second order items, third order items, that sort of thing. One thing that shook out of the 1900s was what is important. And they had what they called the five Fundamentals. This is what they thought was important. I've added a couple of words here, but most of it is preserved as the five fundamentals. The inspiration, the authority, and the inerrancy of Scripture. What do we mean when we say those big words? What's can't inspiration? Use, can't use the Inspired message. by God. Inspired by God, okay. God's authority. Yep. You can't use the message. You can't use the message. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> I'm not going to say you can't. Yeah. I'm not going to preach from it, but... So yeah, inspiration, it is inspired by God, right? Breathed out by God, right? It is authoritative because God is the highest authority, and so therefore, if it's His words, He is the one who is... He says it, so we have to listen to it. And it's inerrant. What does inerrant mean? Infallible, inerrant, right? The words can't fail, and that inerrant that they can't be of error, right? 
in what the Bible is claiming to say, mm -hmm. right? So we, we can draw that line a little bit and be like, well, one of these versions said there was 600 guys who died in battle, and then this version in 1 Kings says there was 20,000 guys. You know, it's like, okay, we're not talking about war records here. We're talking about what the message of the Bible is. It really doesn't mean that <laughs> right. people say. Right. So that's one of the first ones. Inspiration, authority, and inerrancy of Scripture. Second one, virgin birth. Jesus' virgin birth. What do we lose if the virgin birth is false? Where's Mary's virgin birth in there? <laughs> I'm talking about Mary. <laughs> Jesus. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. We lose divinity. We lose, right, his sinlessness, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, yeah, divinity in that sense, because no one would be perfect except God alone. So, and you put him right beside Joseph Smith and Muhammad and everybody else who was a human claiming to have just another man, religion. born by another mom, has a real dad. So you don't have that... Um, divine. Yeah, yeah, that divine Identity. Holy Spirit conception in there. Number three, substitutionary atonement. Big one. Mm -hmm. What is that? For the folks scoring at home, what does that mean? Christ dying on behalf of us for our sins. Yep. That's Christ in our, our place, dying for our sins, atoning, satisfying the penalty for sin. That is a Paying first debt we level could never issue. repay. Yep. The debt we could never repay. Parable of the uh, unforgiving servant, right? Mm -hmm. Number four death and resurrection of Jesus. Non negotiable. <laughs> That there would be salvation or eternity. Yeah. Yep. You lose all your hope if that doesn't happen. Mm hmm. Absolutely. We'll be talking about that shortly. And the miracles of Christ was another one. What do you think? Are there others? Other first order issues? Sovereignty of God. Okay. Mm -hmm. What do we lose if we don't have the sovereignty of God? Well, God's not sovereign, He's not God. Hmm. Good one. Creator. I would agree. Creator. Deity. Original sin. I was going to say seriousness of sin. Like God takes our sin seriously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the Doctrine fact that you're born with sin, that you're not born a good thing, that you're born a sinner. Mm -hmm. That's huge. Right? Yeah. Original sin. Yep. Total depravity of man. Right? That idea that sin has infected every single aspect of us. Some right? wise man said we are sinners by nature and by choice. Yes. Mm -hmm. That wasn't, are you saying that was me? Yes. I stole that from somebody. I don't know who it was. You used it last Sunday, so I but, liked it. I'm going to steal it too. But sinners, sinners, please, but don't credit me. Sinners by nature and choice means that we, are, we have no choice. We, are, well, we were born into sin, right, because of Adam. Thank you. We're all under the curse of sin. But we have all, as Hebrews said, gone astray. We have all Fallen actually short. sinned yeah. ourselves. We've chosen to sin in many yeah. ways. Probably from the time we were two years old. Right? Piper said this in the book, um, the spirit of modernism is not a set of ideas, but an atmosphere that shifts with what is useful from time to time. Mm. Culture. Culture. Yeah. And you get that, that useful part? That's a big part of it. Because culture drives truth through what? what's useful, what's pragmatic, right? The end justifies the means. Well, if your most important end is uh, human flourishing, right, then whatever it takes to get there is okay. 
Useful could be economic or political. <coughs> could be economic, could be political, could be whatever whatever the current culture is, whatever water, whatever way the waters are currently flowing, right? So culture, don't forget, is always going to be pragmatic. It's always going to be utilitarian. It's always going to be what is going to get me where I want to be. And then you'll change truth in order to get that. That's completely opposite than a biblical worldview, right? So, for example, the virgin birth is just one theory of the incarnation, or the bodily resurrection is one theory of a resurrection, as opposed to it is just a fact, right? Facts are seen as principles, not facts. We have a note to read a little quote on 464. Let's see. Mr. Machen has for us from his book called What is Faith? Machen writes, the temper of mind is hostile to precise definitions. Indeed, nothing makes a man more unpopular in the controversies of the present day than an insistence upon the definition of terms. Mm-hmm. You ever talk to somebody and you want to that's mm-hmm. a, what the task number one, define terms. What yeah. are you talking about? How did you get there? What does that mean, right? They don't want to be pinned down, right? Men discourse very eloquently today upon such subjects as God, religion, Christianity, atonement, redemption, and faith, but are greatly incensed when they're asked to tell in simple language what they mean by those terms. Like, what is the definition of is? Yeah, (laughs) what is the definition of is? Yes. Cults, cults commonly redefine terms that we're familiar with, yeah. only they change the meanings to mean something else. Yep. So it's a very common tactic, yep. and our culture does that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <coughs> this was written in 1925. What is a woman? What is, I, knew, <laughs> I knew somebody was going to say that. That's right. <laughs> But, all right, let's talk about it, because somebody said it, right? So the Supreme Court nominee, under oath, right, refused to define what a woman is. She said she couldn't define woman because she wasn't a biologist, right? Right. That's where your worldview gets you, like, at the end. Something that 99% of the world, if they were being completely honest, would say, that's just flat-out ridiculous, right? But she has to keep up that thin facade of that worldview, because if she drops her guard, then... There is truth, and then there is a, a, a man and a woman, and then there is then everything we stand for falls apart. So she's got to keep propping it up. She's got no choice. Right? Yeah. It's it's sad, and you can see right through it. But yeah, stupid should hurt. Stupid should hurt. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it kind of should. Um, what's the what's like as we talk about other big first order doctrines we hit on a couple what is what the doctrine of the trinity the doctrine of the trinity yeah that's a really good one thank you yeah <laughs> right there, there's not a verse that will actually spell out and says this is the trinity, the trinity father son and holy spirit but it's all throughout the new testament mm-hmm. what somebody whispered it once or twice and i know you guys are going to jump right on it but what is the what does the bible itself in the new testament say is the most important thing Yep. yep, that's the greatest the greatest commandment, the most important commandment. But where does what's the climax of the Bible? Where where all this, where does all that all that 
go to, right? Goes to Jesus. Right. Goes yeah. to Jesus. Right. And so it's the gospel, right? Paul literally tells us that's the most important thing. First Corinthians 15, yeah, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you in which you received, right? Don't, don't miss that. Like, received it. Like, it's been preserved it was preserved orally, and then it was preserved in writing, and it was passed on to you carefully. You received it. It's a message. You received it in which you stand and by which you're being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, right? Unless you believed in vain. So we're talking about the perseverance of the saints there. Very important. He said, for I delivered to you as of first importance. Paul literally says, yep. this is the most important thing. I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. And then he goes into the facts of the gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That he appeared to people, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. Paul literally tells us what the most important thing is in the Bible. That's a hill worth dying on, for sure. Right? What about sanctity of marriage and complementarianism? Okay. You jumped a couple lanes there, but okay. <laughs> sanctity of marriage. Tell us more about what you mean by the sanctity of marriage. Well, because as the church tends to be the primary agent responsible for the legal justification of marriages and has been for eons, yep. many churches are now redefining what parties can institute such a contract, Yep. and they're changing it. Yep. Um, so I would say that that definitely, from a biblical point of view, there's consistency in how it has defined both the God's order of marriage and also yeah. in how we treat it not as a contract as much as a covenant, right. which is a different thing. Yeah. I would say Highlands Bible Church would hold to the sanctity of marriage as a hill worth dying on, as a first order issue. And you've got to trace it back to why. Right? And Jesus did. We just talked about it. Matthew 19. Mm-hmm. Right? So it goes right back to creation. Right? So it's tough to get away from a doctrine that's... Right. Which points it, you to one that I was going to say is that God created the world. Yep. Absolutely. You know, God's you, status as sovereign king of his creation. Yep. Yep. That's why you take away creation. Mm-hmm. Right? Then it's like, okay, well then who's in charge? Right. Right? And, and is there a plan? You see God's character, you see his wisdom, you see his intelligence all throughout his creation, his beauty, mm-hmm. his goodness. Right? Yeah. Um, okay, so by complementarianism, you mean male the trend headship leadership? For, the, for them to <clears throat> claim that there is not a divine order in the headship of a family unit, and the idea that I know that for many, many years, church doctrine held that the Bible implicitly has a place and an order for the man in the family, and it has a place and an order for a wife in the family, and that she compliments, and that his leadership compliments her, and her Mm -hmm. submissive compliments his. Mm -hmm. But there's a trend with feminism to say that their definition of equality is an unsubmissive model in which there is no headship, and headship is a distribution that gets taken away and it's only independence is its model. It's yeah. not a complementary model of anything. The flip would be egalitarianism. Right. Right. That says that there is no difference in the roles. Right. 
and that uh, everyone almost, should fight sometimes everyone's independence. on a more extreme side you could say complementarianism is toxic because it's male domination mm-hmm. or something like that right I, I don't know that that's a first level issue but it's really close it's really really close because why because we see it in the bible we're going to talk about in a minute how right. do we triage some of these issues so kind of how about if thoughts. women should wear hats in church <laughs> oh my gosh definitely not it's in the bible though it is in the bible all right so let's let's look at let's look at how I'm just gonna this could, you can calm down again <laughs> let's look at some ways of how we can theologically triage some of these things Everybody familiar with the word triage? Yep. Right? So when a guy comes into the ER, right? Yep. If he has three gunshot wounds and lost a leg, like he's going to get seen front first. Front line. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to the front of the line, right? As opposed to somebody who just has a headache, right? Okay. So the idea is... appendicitis. <laughs> <laughs> the idea is there are, there are issues that you need to sort out into different buckets of importance, right? There's a book that I mentioned before that I thought was really helpful called Finding the Right Hill to Die On. Uh, written by Dane Ortland, and he quotes, this is the longer version, and then we'll get into a shorter more <laughs> version, but I wanted to give you both versions so that you can see some of these things and understand. So how do we rank the importance of a particular doctrine? First, biblical clarity. What does that mean? The clearer it is in the Bible, <laughs> yes. the more... How we, clear is right. the Bible on this subject, right? Right. And people will say, well, you can't really tell doctrine in the Bible. It's like, no, there are some doctrines that are really, really crystal clean, clear, right? Like John 3, take the whole chapter. Like, it's really, really clear. Believe or not. If you don't believe, you'll be condemned. It says it right there, right? Number two is the relevance to the character of God. How close is this particular doctrine to the character of God? Things about male, female, and how we're created kind of kind of border on character issues of God. So that's why I say it's it's pretty important. It's relevance to the essence of the gospel, because that is uh, item of first importance, right? Justification by faith alone being one of them, sort of uh, related to the uh, relevance of the gospel a lot. Frequency in Scripture, how often do we see it in Scripture? Does it affect other doctrines? What is, and I'm probably getting cut off here soon, what is the consensus among Christians? Watch this, over history. What has been the historical understanding of the church? Mm-hmm. Going back to eschatology, because somebody said that, right? You look at the eschatological views of the church. We said pre-mill, pre-trip. I'll pick on the pre-mill people for a minute, right? The pre-mill, pre-trip, you're not going to find that until the last, like, 90 years of history. All of a sudden, that pops onto the scene. Not saying it makes it wrong, but it should make, your, make you scratch your head and say, well, why did the church believe what it believed for 2,000 years? And then all of a sudden, Tim LaHaye starts writing Left Behind books, and everybody goes over here. Like, it doesn't make any sense, or does it? Right? The effect on personal and church life. The doctrine, does, what is the effect of believing a different version of the doctrine on our personal life or our church life? And lastly, is there current cultural pressure to deny a teaching of Scripture? Like why are we being asked to reconsider this doctrine? Is there current cultural pressure? That's not a good reason to change a doctrine, right? Mm-hmm. Just because right. culture says something different, right? So those are 
I think there's eight of them that this guy Eric Thones, Thones uh, tried to rank some of the importance, and that's quoted in uh, Dane Ortland's book. Dane, fortunately, has a shorter version. Three things. How clear is the Bible? Or four things. How clear is the Bible on this doctrine? What is the doctrine's importance to the gospel? What is the testimony of the historical church? And what is the doctrine's effect in the church today? So when we're talking about theological triage, try to get some buckets around some of these things and try to understand some categories here in that. So you look at, uh, let's look at the concept of picking a cultural issue. Cultural creationism. Creationism. Okay. So how clear is the Bible on this doctrine of creationism? <laughs> Oh, Pretty clear. Pretty clear. Pretty clear? Pretty, clear. Pretty darn clear. Especially now, if you read Genesis 1. Right. But now, right, that presupposes what? That you believe the Bible is the authority oh, yeah. of the Word of God. Right. If you think Genesis is one big metaphor or allegory or fairy tale, then that goes right out the window. Right? So we've got to establish, too, like some certain presuppositions if the Bible is the Word of God. Right. Yeah, but Darwin wasn't there either. What do you mean? Darwin wasn't there at the beginning of the world. He oh. has no idea what happened then. <laughs> no, nobody was. Nobody was. Nobody was except God. <laughs> except right? God, right. Yeah, so creationism, Bible's, I would say, extremely clear on that issue. Not only in Genesis, right? We just read in Matthew 19, Jesus quoted Genesis. Psalms. In Psalms. In Psalms, right? It's mm -hmm. everywhere. So. Isaiah. Yep. Mm -hmm. That hits on another one of, of the other guy's uh, list of how frequently is it mentioned throughout Scripture, right? Um, what is the doctrine's importance to the gospel? So creationism. What's the doctrine's, imp how important is that to the gospel? Is it related at all? It's foundational. Oh, foundational, yeah. Because it's your creator supplying that sub the substitutionary atonement. That's... His role is that he is the creator and the maker, and he is being the substitute for you. Okay. Also, if the trees from the garden didn't belong to God, he would have no right to have told Adam and Eve not to eat from one of them. Yep. So then sin wouldn't have been initially like, started in that way. Absolutely. So God's role of creator and king gave him the right and the authority to set the rules. Yeah. You break the rules. That's called sin. And then also I get to then set the punishment because I'm the creator. It's my kingdom, mm -hmm. right? Just like we learned with the, the vineyard owner, right? It's my kingdom. I can do what I want. So, yeah, absolutely. What else? Well, everything's predicated on that because <coughs> this is an apologetic tangent for just a moment. But if you take oh, away it. the foundational issue of where we came from, the secular modalities don't have a response for that. Darwin didn't even dare to venture a guess as to where we all came from. He just described a process in his opinion. Mm -hmm. But to borrow from Ravi, there are four major tenets of philosophy. That's origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. And the Judeo-Christian worldview is the only one that adequately addresses those. Outside of that, atheism has no answer. The big questions are the worldviews, right? How do we get here? What are we supposed to do? What went wrong? How do we fix it? Yeah. They, can't, they don't have an answer. They'll purpose? deny, which yep. is okay. I mean, if they want to, but yep. they're left without an answer. Yeah. yeah, you're left creating a church culture without a... Any, ever answering your actual philosophy questions of what your religion applies to if you take the creation out of it. That's why yeah. I say atheism is a religion. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it, creation is hugely important 
uh, to the gospel. Because without it, we don't have a king. We don't have sin. We don't have violation there. What about the parallels of being dead to sin and being raised to new life in Christ? Like, who creates that new life? God does. Right? He created the world. It's in, you know, he who said, let light shine out of darkness created that in our hearts. Same thing. That's Paul hearkening back to creation. Remember, he's the creator God. That's how you go from dead to sin to alive in Christ because the creator God created life in you. And so, it also says that he was there even before he made the creation. He was hovering. So yeah, basically, the spirits hovering over the water. Yeah, yeah, so basically he was there even before he made the blueprint uh, in Genesis and through Revelation. Yep, yep. Um, let's look at maybe one more because uh, creation I think we established pretty good what about uh, homosexuality yeah light topic on maybe. <laughs> how clear is the Bible on this doctrine pretty clear abundantly <laughs> abundantly crystal clear right fresh off Matthew 19 yep. that we just preached through and Hebrews 12 and Hebrews 12 <laughs> this morning and we read this morning yes. <laughs> yeah what is the doctrine's importance to the gospel? Does homosexuality have anything to do with the gospel? It undermines the creative order as described in Genesis. It's rebellion. Yeah. It's rebellion. And it defines Romans a specific one. state of sin that a person can have in their heart. Yep. Yep. A specific state of sin that somebody can have in their hearts, right? Romans 1 is critical to understanding that, um, that God mm -hmm. giving them over to their sin. Right, and one of the first things, right? They they suppress their knowledge of truth by their unrighteousness, and one of the first artifacts of that is it gets backed up in their sexuality. That's why Paul goes into that. Right and the God's the Creator, Romans one. That's mm -hmm. right in there too. The what? Romans one also emphasizes God the Creator. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. What is the historic testimony of the Church considering homosexuality? It's wonderful. always been accepted as of late. <laughs> No, over the course of the church's existence, over the over the two thousand years of its church's existence, do you think it was was homosexuality accepted? It was no. not. It was no. not accepted no. even before then. No. Correct. Yep. Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Yep. Yep. Definitely not in biblical times, right? You go all the way back to Genesis, of course, the law for Israel, severe penalties mm -hmm. for that, which doesn't do us any help, right? right? When people go around and they put that Leviticus 19 or whatever on their picket signs, <laughs> it's like, yes, okay, right? I get that, but people will then, if you're a smart atheist, you're gonna go right back to Deuteronomy and you're gonna say, okay, you just called out that verse, your pastor's got tattoos, so which one's more important, <laughs> right? So you kind of lose that battle, it's got different right? Fabrics it's, on. it's got different fabrics, fabrics on. I yes. planted two different kinds of seed, right? You know. <laughs> We've got to be smart about it, right? We, we, we can't just pick a verse out of the Old Testament and then say it applies to, to today. Just right? to be fair, the fabric one <clears throat> is rooted in scientific. Oh, yeah? Yes, fabrics have frequencies and your body has a frequency. Wow. Linen has a specific frequency. Cotton has a specific... Cotton is a neutral frequency, but linen has the highest frequency of any fiber. When you mix two um, together, they actually harm the frequency of your own body. Dang. Makes you sick. And every, this is a science. This is wow. studied in colleges. So it's, you mean God knew what he was doing? He totally knew that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um... So yeah, historically, the church has condemned homosexuality throughout its existence, right? And then if we even go to the last one, what is the doctrine's effect on the church today? Oh, that's a big one. 
Because if you accept that, then you're opening the door for all of the other sways that culture has on it mm -hmm. to integrate it. So it's almost like once you undefine one thing, you open the door for a thousand other things that are needing to be undefined, yeah. that you've logically given a base to to undefine it. Yeah. Or redefine it. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of undermines the authority of God's Word. Yeah. Immediately, right? Undermines marriage, undermines who we are as people. You know, has a massive effect on the church today. So we're still supposed to love the sinner. Oh, absolutely. We hate the sin, yep. but love the person. Absolutely. Right. No, no, no. Absolutely, absolutely. That's why sometimes when we're talking about it, we're talking about maybe um, a non-Christian, right? It, take it in both sides. A non-Christian that says, you know, I'm a homosexual, right? Okay, our first approach to them is not, well, stop being gay. Like, you know, that, that's not the first thing that we say because the gospel is not stop sinning, right? The gospel is we're all sinners and we need a Savior and his name is Jesus, right? But a Christian who calls himself a Christian who then says, I'm a homosexual, right? That's a problem. Or a pastor who happens to be, yeah. claimed to be homosexual. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so there's different ways of approaching it. But yeah, absolutely love yeah. Is, is number one, especially for a non-believer, right? right? But Paul's very clear in 1 Corinthians. We just read it this morning at Bible study, right? We're not supposed to judge those outside the world. They're lost, right? Mm -hmm. They need the gospel. We're called to judge those inside the church. He says it point blank. Mm -hmm. like, okay, we're all supposed to be singing from the same hymnal here. Right? We're all supposed to be saying this is the word of God, so that's our guide. Right? We do it in love, because ultimately it is about love. If somebody's veering off the path, it's not loving to let them keep going. Can I tell you right? one of the things I've noticed like, <coughs> in the church since that's been an integrated concept of integrating homosexuality into the church, mm -hmm. quote-unquote doctrine platform, there's less and less of the concept that, was, that the old-timers had known as a fear of God. Yeah. And I kind of see where we adopt and adapt to the modern integration of different cultural norms. The yeah. less and less our God is something to be feared. And uh, this all-embracive, you know, your gospel is a message of love everything, mm -hmm. which is different from your, your God is a divinity that is a judging God who does love you and has provided an yeah. atonement for you. But we lose it in this idea of inclusivity. And you shifted the focus from... God himself being the center to us yes, being the center exactly. of it. That's a huge thing we lose with the sovereignty of God. If God's not the one that I have to fear and submit to, I'm the one then that I have to fear and submit to. This is my truth, right? Then God's job is to serve me, mm -hmm. right? If he exists at all. That's a huge subtle shift. That's actually the most dangerous thing, I think, in the prosperity gospel, the word of faith, all of that, is that it shifts the focus from fear of God to I'm in control and God's going to help me achieve my dreams kind of thing. I wonder if we had a king and a queen, you know, uh, today, yeah. rather than, an, you know, a democratic style of government, yeah. would would people uh, get that concept? You mean a king that would say, if you don't do what I say, I'm chopping off your head? Yeah, exactly. That might go a long way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they get the idea a little bit. You, you know, you respect the yeah. sovereign king, you yeah. know. It would mean something when you said, my Lord. 
Yes, exactly. would mean something. My leash. I don't know that Americans get it, really. No, we definitely do not get it. All right, so a couple of other things. One of the other things he contended for, uh, which led to the organization of a new denomination entirely, was the social gospel versus the biblical gospel. So Machen recognized that his, his denomination, the Presbyterian Church, was drifting away in their philosophy of missions. They were embracing a social gospel in missions. In other words, sure, we have to preach the gospel. Sure, we have to teach them the Bible. But it's more important that we uh, fight for racial harmony. It's more important that we clothe them. It's more important that we feed them. It's more important that we do those things. And yeah, we'll get around to the gospel too, but let's just focus on these things right here, right? That's kind of referred to as the social gospel. It's not a gospel at all. And, and, and Machen recognized that immediately. Because if you care for somebody's physical needs, but you never get around to telling them the gospel, then what are you doing, right? We need both. We definitely need both, right? It's not just, oh, here, have a tract and let me tell you about Jesus, and oh, I'm sorry you haven't eaten in a week. But, you know, hope you get some food. No, feed them, <laughs> but also explain the gospel, right? So Machen saw things going like this, where they were focusing way too much on physical needs, social gospel, all of that sort of thing. He went to the General Assembly to fight it, and um, he lost. And it actually got worse for him. Not only did he lose, he basically got fired. He, got, he was on trial, and he lost, and he was defrocked. He lost his ordination, and he was kicked out of his own denomination. Hmm. And so he said, much like, okay, I'll go start my own seminary. I'll go start my own denomination. <laughs> so he started the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, which is still around today. There are about 300 churches and over 30,000 members uh, today. So when you see the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, remember that was Machen that started that because that was a hill to die on, right? And I think that's one of the things that we need to remember here as we kind of land the plane <coughs> is that sometimes we do need to die on a hill. Sometimes we do need to lose the job. Sometimes we do need to get fired. Sometimes we do need to lose that promotion or that friend or whatever it is. You know, we get to a point where if it's a, a high and important enough doctrine that compromises some of these things about the gospel, we need to not fear dying on that hill, right? And take it all the way, right? Martyrs, they lose their lives because they are not compromising. We're going to look at some of them soon in coming weeks. People translating the Bible into English. And they said, stop. And they said, no. I said, I'm going to kill you. And they said, fine. I'll get the wood. Let's light the stake. You know, and it's like, they're, they're not going to drop it. And so sometimes we've got to remember, like Machen, who lost his seminary and started a new one, and lost his denomination and started a new one. Right? There are hills that we're going to need to die on sometimes. Right? What about spotting liberalism today? Does liberalism still exist today? Is the church still uh, subject no. to following culture today? Or I think we're holding pretty straight to conservative biblical principles. Just visit the church down the street from my house. Yes. Even in our own town, right, we see massive drift from historical, orthodox, biblical Christianity, right? 
Piper had three things that I thought would be helpful for us to think about. Three, liberalism today, you can spot it with three negative impulses that lead us to modernism. The first one is that we have a suspicion of the past and a preference for modern advances, right? So we think, like, ah, well, yeah, the church used to believe that 2,000 years ago, but we're so much smarter now. Like, this is where we are now. This is what we need to believe. C.S. Lewis called that what? Chronological snobbery, right? Mm -hmm. you, you, just because something's old doesn't mean it's wrong, right? Maybe it's right because it's old. Just because something's new doesn't mean it's right. We've got to think about this. So why are we tempted to drift in whatever direction? Is somebody... Um, is, are they suspect of the past in favor of what is new for today? That's the first thing. Second thing, are they skeptical, uh, skeptical about truth? Do they replace the category of truth with pragmatism, as we were saying before? Okay, well, it's more important that the end justifies the means, right? It's more important that we have more members in the church. We don't care if they're saved or not. We don't care if they're following the Bible or not. Uh, it's more important that we serve families. We don't care if we're going to ordain gay marriage or something like that. right? That's, those are examples of the ends justifying the means and what gets thrown out, the truth in the process. So being skeptical, skeptical about truth. <clears throat> and last, a denial of the supernatural. Like, whatever I see, this is what I believe. Ever have somebody says, if you can give me enough evidence that God exists, I will believe. Yeah. Right? Yeah, they usually don't want to listen anyway, <laughs> even after you tell them. I, I, I'm never going to be able to prove God beyond a shadow of a doubt. I'm just not. That's why they call it faith. <laughs> right? Uh, you'll see miracles being attacked today. Right? Jesus didn't do those miracles. They're scientifically impossible. But even Jesus was doing miracles in front of the Pharisees, yet the Pharisees said, show me miracles. <laughs> like, Do that again. I wasn't yeah, really sure. Yeah, exactly. I'm not sure I saw that the first 10 or 15 times. <laughs> so if you start to see one of these three things or all of these three things, it's, your radar should be going off. This yeah. one, this one confuses me, the denial of the supernatural, because we have a, a culture, an un underculture, that is involved with the occult. Yep. And so, so that's a that's an evil exactly supernatural. Right. Yep. And yet they're denying the supernatural of God and Jesus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, that, Why do you think they do that? <laughs> well, again, even the materialists, which adhere strictly to science, what we see is what we get, can't explain those four things I mentioned earlier: origin, meaning, morality, destiny. They have no answers. And it's very simple. I mean, if God ordained the laws by which the universe operates, mm -hmm. anything outside of those laws would be considered supernatural. He is already outside of those laws. Right. Mm -hmm. So. And I think, too, I mean, part of the reason why we see a, uh, an interest in what's known as the mystic or the mysticism. Mm -hmm. Mysticism, yeah, that's the So word. I think there's this great verse in Proverbs that says that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. Yep. And even though Ecclesiastes, we... Ecclesiastes. Yeah, oh, Ecclesiastes. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Thank you. Um, and I think that even if we get stuck in a purely concrete conception of our reality, something inside of us is always intrigued because there's a part of us that God made with that God-shaped hole that Augustine talked about that's mm -hmm. made to be filled that by desire. something. Exactly. 
It's not Extreme. a midweek. It's not a midweek without a <laughs> drop of Augustine reference. Oh, I have an Augustine for everything. <laughs> Wendy, I oh, would sorry. argue that we're saying a lot of good things, right? That doesn't go away because God created us with eternity in our hearts. God created us to be worshipers. God created us to worship Him. So if we say no, God, you're still going to worship something. That impulse is still going to be there. But I will say why you're not going to worship God is because if you buy into God, then he has authority over me. Then he can tell me what to do. And I don't want that, right? Because Romans 1 said it was by their unrighteousness they suppressed the truth. I want my sin. I want my autonomy. I want King Mike. Like, I'm the king. And if I submit to you, then you're the king and I have to listen to you. I'd much rather just have this uh, amalgamation of all my little spiritual things over here that are safe, that don't tell me what to do with my life. Right? Good luck. Fools Good luck with that. What? Fools hate correction. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yep. So true. So last but certainly not least, we the church must be faithful. And I'll read a little bit uh, just to close us out here. <clears throat> Piper writes, I don't think the structure of the modernism of Machen's day is too different than the postmodernism of our day. In some churches, the triumph of modernism is complete. It is still a menace at the door of all our churches and schools and agencies. One of our great protections will be the awareness of stories like Machen's, the enemies he faced, the battles he fought, the weapons he used, and the losses he sustained, the price he paid, and the triumphs he wrought. If we do not know history... We will be weak and poor in our efforts to be faithful in our day. Our hope for the church and the spread of the true gospel lies not ultimately in our strategies, but in God. And there is every hope that he will triumph. And Machen wrote this, The church is still alive. An unbroken spiritual descent connects us with those whom Jesus commissioned. Times have changed in many respects. New problems must be faced, new difficulties overcome. But the same message will still be proclaimed to a lost world. Today we have need of all our faith. Unbelief and error have perplexed us sore. Strife and hatred have set the world aflame. There is only one hope, but that hope is sure. God has never deserted his church, and his promise never fails. So good encouragement for us to be reminded that we stand on the shoulders of these giants as well, and we're called to be faithful. Alrighty. I do have one question. Yeah. Um, Piper brought up near the end of this chapter on yep. um, Machen, uh, kind of tentatively that yeah he kind of worked himself to death. He was overweight. He yeah. is you know wrought out or whatever. Yep. And kind of pokes at him like, hey, if you hadn't killed over, what could you have accomplished if you hadn't worked yourself to death? Yeah. And it was just kind of this, this curious thing because at the same time. I don't even remember the guy's name, but the one <coughs> who was bringing the gospel to the Native Americans and dying of... Um, Rainer? Yeah, that's yeah. probably him. And, you know, dying of um, uh, lung disease. Consumption. Yes, consumption <laughs> at the same time. And it's just like, hey, you maybe if you hadn't killed yourself riding this horse 3,000 miles to bring, you know, the, the things, yep. bringing, you know, the gospel to the Indians, but you could have done that for another 20 years if maybe you had tried to save your health a little, yeah. you know. But, again, that idea wasn't brought up about him. It's like, oh, he sacrificed his life, and he did all these good things, and he died, you know. And yeah. they're like, well, why can't you? you know, they're, but they're like, making shame on you for 
for not, you know, yeah. for not taking better care of your health, you know. Yeah. So it's just that idea. It's like, how do you draw the line between, you know, yeah, dying and, you know, pursuing bringing the gospel to people and, no, take better care of yourself mm -hmm. and maybe hold back sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's like, how do, you, how do you draw that line? Wisdom and discernment. Think of a guy like Tim Elliott. Right? Missionary who went to the cannibals. It's like, right. You're going to get killed as soon as you step off that airplane. Right? Mm. I got to go. I still got to go. Mm -hmm. Think of the Apostle Paul. If you go to Jerusalem, Paul, you're going to die. Yeah, I know. Mm -hmm. right? I, I don't know. There's definitely something as far as wisdom. Like our, our bodies, we're supposed to steward them well. They're a temple of the Holy Spirit. So to let yourself go, become overweight like Machen did, work yourself to death in the name of the gospel. Yeah, but at what point does that become an idol, right? At what point does even ministry become an idol? It's like, I've got to keep going no matter what. I'm killing myself, but i got to keep going. It's like, I think that's what Piper is poking at too. I think there are, there are risks and there is discernment, but there's also wisdom and there's also stewardship, and sometimes that's a tricky, a tricky call, right? Um, I'm blessed with elders who uh, take very good care of me and protect my time and make sure that I'm not burning out and making sure that all those, you know, making sure I'm not too busy, two of those things, right? Because we don't want to, I don't want to burn out. I don't want to burn out pastor, right? So I think there's a lot to say for that, but there are times where it's just like, no, I just got to, Keep going. I'm going to get through this season, and then we'll rest. Seasons turn into lifestyles, right? That's the problem. Mm -hmm. We don't want them to turn into a lifestyle. Does that help? Yes. Yep. He also was a Jersey boy, and he was in North Dakota. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. He probably didn't Traveling expect around the world. that type of weather. <laughs> Jersey can be also cold, too. Yeah, though. but North Dakota's cold. Not North Dakota cold. <laughs> yeah. North Dakota's a different kind of cold. Yeah. So you might have just been taken by surprise. <laughs> yeah. It is something to think about. Um, I mean, in the end, right, we're all, our, our days are numbered by the Lord. Yep. We're ordained, but that doesn't mean I'm going to walk in traffic. <laughs> so. All right. Well, let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much that we can get together. We can look at this man, uh, Lord, and his contention for the truth uh, we thank you. Uh, we look at some of these organizations that uh, resulted from his contending for the truth. Uh, Westminster Seminary and all the pastors that it has trained over the years. And um, the Presbyterian Church, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and bringing men through that like uh, Carl Truman and others who uh, write books and, and podcasts and things that help us to this day. And so we pray, Lord, that we would be those that contend for the truth not to be obnoxious, not to be divisive or argumentative, but those that understand what are the key first order doctrines and that we would do so in such a way, uh, Lord, that is gracious, but yet unmoving on the truths that you have in your word because they are connected to you and your character and your gospel. And so help us, Lord, as the church to be faithful. It is all around us compromised with the world. And we pray that we would stand strong and we would stand strong in love and stand strong holding out the word of life to a twisted and crooked generation. Mm -hmm. 
We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.